The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. Ultimately, it came down to like, if you you know, want to have the best shot at saving your kid's life, you really need to step in and dedicate your life to this and spend a lot of time on it. Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, episode 21. I am your host, Becky Saltzman. And today's episode, we are diving into cancer, specifically children's cancer, and children's cancer research. Whether or not you've been touched by or exposed to children's cancer, if you're relentlessly curious like me, you're probably interested. Now, I am among the group of unfortunate parents who have received the call, the one that provides the test result for your child's biopsy, the one that explains the results in language that requires a bit of inquiry to to ascertain exactly what that diagnosis means. Does that mean cancer? My family's story ended well. Many of the stories of parents who receive this call do not. But there is really no template for the right thing to do. We all know that we need to be medical advocates for ourselves, for our friends, for our family. Does this extend to society? We talk about our need to be medical advocates, but What exactly does this mean? What exactly should you do? How do you ask and discover without alienating the experts? How do you filter the deluge of data, sometimes scary information that is easily found on the internet? How do you make sense of scholarly articles? How do you even access them? Should you meddle in the protocols suggested by the experts or should you just let them do their job? Now, an orphan disease is a disease that has not been tackled by the pharmaceutical industry because it provides little financial incentive for the private sector to make and market new medications to treat or prevent it. An orphan disease may be a rare disease, according to the U.S. criteria, a disease that affects fewer than 200,000 people, or it may be a common disease that has been ignored because it's far more prevalent in developing countries than in the developed world. Examples of these are tuberculosis and cholera, typhoid, and malaria. And here's the deal. Patients with rare genetic disorders have actually fueled progress in the fields of human genetics and molecular therapeutics. These patients are often without options and therefore they're enthusiastic to participate in research, often based on the remote promise of personal gain at a very real personal expense. Also, studying these orphan diseases clearly have an effect on a on our understanding of more common diseases. For example, research on Wilms tumor, which we're gonna talk about today, which is a rare pediatric cancer, has been cited as a model for understanding the genetics, epigenetics, and molecular biology of pediatric cancers and cancers generally. If you value 
truly amazing stories filled with instructive takeaways, you'll want to stick around for this episode because today my guest is Andy Woods. Prior to 2011, Andy was a successful stonemason. He had no prior biology, biochemistry, or research background. He had no exposure to or experience with cancer. He wasn't even familiar with the term oncology. All of that changed with the diagnosis of his four-year-old daughter, Stella, with a rare form of Wilms tumor called anaplastic Wilms tumor. This is where Andy's life took a considerable turn. It is where his interest in cancer research began. As they progressed through Stella's treatments, it became apparent that her prognosis was poor, very poor, and her options were extremely limited. And thus, it became Andy's personal mission to attempt to provide more promising treatment options, not only for his daughter, but also for any child suffering with a rare cancer. Children with rare cancers often face a bleak prognosis with limited treatment options due to the fact that very little research has been done with their disease. Due to their small population numbers, there is very little investment in children with cancer, especially rare cancers. These cancers are often orphan diseases. Andy has dedicated his life to advocating for children with rare cancers and to finding ways to engage in further research for this population of cancer patients in the hopes of providing more effective and less toxic therapies. He joined the Children's Cancer Therapy Development Institute team in the summer of 2016, where he focuses on childhood kidney cancer research. We talk about how he became the most effective advocate for his daughter and for parents of children with cancer everywhere. We talk about how he learned to understand articles on Google Scholar and how he navigated academia, big pharma, and the associated roadblocks, politics, and economics. How do you do research? How can you find researchers working on relevant diseases and challenges? How do you convince big pharma to do a drug trial? We talk about exactly how he made his transition from stonemason to cancer researcher. He's so specific in his instructive story that I suspect that you'll come away with understanding exactly how you could make a dramatic career change, one that is very far from qualifying as a simple career pivot. This interview is probably less conversational than most because Andy is so riveting that I mostly let him tell me his story. And if you are confronted with a scary diagnosis, I hope you can let this episode be your guide. And now, without further ado, I bring you my episode with Andy Woods. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be on. Your story is fascinating, inspiring, daunting, but perhaps most importantly for listeners, it's instructive because it's a peek inside childhood cancer and cancer research and how to make what may seem like an impossible career change, especially when there appear to be no other options. Can you start by taking us back to Stella's stomach ache in 2011? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so Stella Blue is my oldest daughter. And in 2011, when she was four years old or so, she started complaining about her crampies, she called them. And basically, as as parents, we kind of went through the rigmarole of, oh, you know, what's going on with her? Maybe she's allergic to milk or something, or she appeared to be slightly anemic. And we just had had no idea what, what was going on. And we tried a bunch of different things. But eventually, um, in in about in let's see September of 2011, we had brought her into the hospital because we couldn't figure out what was going on, and um, her uh, blood counts were quite high. 
and you could also feel like a hardening mass uh, on our belly. Um, so unfortunately, come to find out, they eventually did an ultrasound and, and, and could see a, a very large tumor uh, on her kidney. Um, this all took place in Bozeman, Montana. Um, and Montana is kind of a strange state. It's a big, big state, beautiful state, but only uh, has a very small population of people. So they don't have any uh, pediatric oncology programs in the state. Um, so basically, we were once we found the mass in in Bozeman, um, our doctor, our pediatrician at the time, told us that we had uh, about 24 hours. He said you need to pack up everything and leave, get to a major um, childhood cancer treatment center, um, and the biggest ones near uh, Bozeman were uh, Salt Lake City, uh, Denver, or Seattle. We didn't know anybody in Denver or Salt Lake, and we knew one person that I had gone to college with many, many uh, years ago in, in Seattle. So that, that was pretty much our, how we decided. <laughs> Why did you only have 24 hours? Uh, well, at that point in time, it was an emergency situation. So um, the one interesting thing about Wilms tumor is that it actually starts in the developing fetus when the kidney is developing and it just kind of slowly ticks along and you have no indication, you know, whatsoever that something's wrong and it just kind of grows slowly and then it grows exponentially at the end. So um, I can remember even as soon as like the week before we went into the doctors feeling her belly, trying to see if I could feel anything. And I, I really couldn't, feel anything. It just felt normal. And then um, the day that we did bring her in, it was, it was quite clear that there was a large mass there. I mean, you could feel it on the outside. So we realized that it was growing very quickly and um, it was a, an emergency situation. So you packed up your bags. What what did that entail? Well, it was uh, pretty chaotic. I mean, as, as you and, and probably your listeners can imagine, you know, you, you, you just never suspect uh, that your kid's going to get diagnosed with cancer. And um, for us and our family, like we knew absolutely nothing about cancer, much less childhood cancer. And we had been uh, very fortunate and cancer had not impacted either my wife or, or my family up until that point. So basically, uh, you know, knew absolutely nothing. We were sort of plunged into this world. Um, at the time, I was a tile and stone contractor. So I was, I had run a, a tile and stone installation business for 15 years or so in, in Bozeman. Um, and so I had three employees and four jobs going all the time. Um, we had just bought our first house, which was like a lovely little log cabin up in the woods um, in the mountains outside of Bozeman. And, and we had also just, just given birth to our, our second child. So, so there we were um, with Soren, who was the young one um, at, at about one week old. And, um, you know, life pretty much was chaotic as always. And then all of a sudden um, we realized that Stella's situation was really dire. And we pretty much uh, rushed home, tore the house apart, threw everything in a little car and took off and uh, made phone calls on the way. So I called my friend in um, Seattle uh, while we were on the way and I hadn't spoken with her in like 15 years, uh, and, uh, but I still had her contact information and I knew she was living out there. And 
So I called her on the way and said, Hey, we haven't spoken a long time, but I, uh, you know, my oldest daughter just got diagnosed with cancer and we're on our way to Seattle. And can we please, you know, stay at your house while we kind of figure things out? And, um, she, of course, very nicely said yes. And that's what we used her place as a home base at first when we got out there. Now, did you contact doctors along the way? Did you have a referral from your doctor at Bozeman? How did you navigate once you decided that you were going to make Seattle your destination? Yeah, that was pretty much it. Um, I, I can clearly remember like calling the hospital on the way um, and um I often chuckle now because cancer and, and cancer terms, you know, become r- really familiar. But I remember calling the hospital and trying to explain our situation. And I, I knew we needed a pediatric oncologist, but I, I didn't even know how to pronounce that that word or uh, or what it meant. So it was a, a struggle at first. And I think, you know, just being in the shock of the situation, the, the phone calls, um, we're pretty strange. You know, it was me just calling the front desk of the Hemonc department saying, Hey, uh, my kid has cancer and we're on our way and we're going to need to be in surgery <laughs> um, immediately. And them not really having any idea what was going on. But uh, I, I do remember her saying, uh, you know, just keep coming, you know, you're doing the right thing and we'll get this sorted out uh, by the time you get here. And and Seattle Children's is just an awesome hospital. So very much, you know, as as we arrived into Seattle at like 1030 at night, they already had it lined up for us to come into the hospital the next day. And um, we were, uh, I think we were ad- admitted the first day and just went through setting everything up and then spent the night in the hospital. And then immediately the next day we're in surgery. What happened next? We get out to Seattle. Um, Spent the night at our friend's house and then went right to the hospital for the next day. Um, we're basically told what was going on. Uh, she had a massive tumor that they could see via ultrasound and CT scan. Um, and the plan was they were going to remove the tumor, remove the kidney, uh, and anything else that, or any, they ended up removing the adrenal gland as well because the, the tumor was touching the adrenal gland. So that was a very intense surgery. The the tumor at that time was, uh, well, it was described to me as being the size of a cantaloupe, um, which you can imagine in a four-year-old little girl is, is quite large. And so it was, I, I think it was like a 10 or 12-hour surgery. So it was terrifying to go through because we, we sat, you know, in the, you know, we get in the surgery first thing in the morning and it's pretty busy. There's maybe 20 people there all kind of waiting for their family or patients going through. And then throughout the day, as the surgeries wrapped up, they would all leave and it ended up just us being there and, and that was it. And there was just this waiting period of a long, long time where we just kind of waited. Um, and finally at seven o'clock at night, uh, the surgeon comes out looking very tired, <laughs> um, but did, was able to give us the good news that they got the tumor out. They, so they removed the kidney, the adrenal gland, and the tumor, and, and it was a su- successful removal. While you were waiting during that time, other than sitting with your newborn baby, what were you doing? Um, pretty much just waiting. You know, at, at that point, it's it's like I said, it's it's a terrifying scenario to be in, um, and especially that you know right in the beginning when. You just don't know anything about cancer. And um, so there's financial issues to worry about. You know, um, there's like 
I was concerned about my work, you know, because I had employees that were depending on me. So I would uh, spend a lot of time on the phone with them, trying to explain the situation of that they would have to kind of finish up these jobs. And I knew very little about cancer at that time. And I can remember, you know, telling them I'd be back in two or three weeks. <laughs> How did you choose two or three weeks? Uh, probably just randomly, you know, just because I didn't know any better. So I thought, well, this will be a good long stay in the hospital, which to my mind at that time was two or three weeks. <laughs> um, it ended up being almost two years of, of, of treatment that we were away from home. So it was um, quite different than what I was expecting. But I, again, that just kind of speaks to the um, naiveness, I guess, that I had and that probably most people have about childhood cancer. So when you get the good news that they've removed the kidney and the adrenal gland, what were they telling you at that time were your next steps? Well, at that time, the, we had to wait for pathology to come back for an official diagnosis, but they were pretty sure that it was Wilms tumor. Um, Wilms is the most common childhood kidney cancer, so it's a pretty classic case of that. And so I would ask them about, you know, Wilms and the prognosis and the treatments and stuff. And um, fortunately for most Wilms kids, it's almost 90% curable. Like many kids respond well um, to traditional chemotherapy and radiation. Unfortunately for us, um, when the pathology report did come back, I don't know, a week later or so, she was diagnosed with stage four, which is pretty advanced, and then also uh, a subtype of Wilms tumor called anaplastic Wilms tumor. And unfortunately, uh, for the eight eight percent about um, about eight percent of Wilms tumors are anaplastic, and those kids do not respond well at all to therapies. And so, so the prognosis, you know, for normal Wilms kid is is about 90% successful, but when they have anaplasia, the odds just plummet, and we were looking at maybe a 30% chance of success. And then also we found out then that um, the cancer had metastasized, so it had already spread up to her lungs, which uh, is, of course, pretends the worst prognosis. So that was heartbreaking, yeah. What were some of the questions looking back now in that period of panic, what were some of the questions that you asked? How did you get up to speed so quickly? Sure. Well, I'll, you know, I'll first say like, it, it took a while to get up to speed. I mean, we were really plunged into the situation that you know absolutely nothing about. So it, it was very challenging to know what questions to ask. Basically at that time, I was really focused on what, you know, what are the treatment options? Like what, what, what are we going to do to, to cure my daughter? And I wanted it, it really spelled out as to what chemotherapies we were going to get, what radiation treatment we were going to get. That was pretty much it at that point in time. Um, I will say, you know, we were, we were very focused on treatment and we had very high hopes that, um, that that treatment would work. And so, so that, that's essentially what we did is we went through, um, I think it was, uh, about seven to eight months of, of treatment. They wanted to treat aggressively because they knew it was an aggressive disease. So we did like two weeks of radiation treatment and then several, I think it was 35 rounds of chemotherapy. 35 rounds of chemotherapy? Yep. It was, a, it was, a, which is a more intense, uh, protocol than, than most Wilms kids get. But again, it was because they knew it was the anaplastic subtype. So they 
wanted to treat as aggressively as as possible. Were there ever any times in talking with the doctor? I mean, you just got the doctor you got. Did you feel lucky to get the doctor you got? Did you keep this original doctor that you got? Did you challenge the doctor in any way that might have changed or influenced protocol? Or were you just kind of so shell-shocked that you just went along with whatever the doctor suggested for that particular kind of Wilms tumor? Yeah, uh, I, I'll say again, like at first, we definitely were shell-shocked and um, we're just going along with what the doctors were saying. Um, I'll quickly point out that we landed in Seattle kind of randomly, uh, but we couldn't be more happier with Seattle Children's Hospital. They really are just a top-notch um, organization, and we picked up on that right away. So we felt confident. We felt like we were in very good hands um, from the get-go, um, and still to this day, we, we feel that way. And and so so what we did was we went through that aggressive treatment um, we were able to, you know, successfully remove the tumor and then shrink any evidence of disease down to um, nothing that they could see on a CT scan. So they call that NED or no evidence of disease. And so we achieved that after seven months of therapy and we were able to move back uh, to Montana for a few months, which was, was really nice. That was another thing that we, that was like the main goal was to get through treatment and be able to move back home. Because like I said, we had just bought our first house and and it was very different, a very different lifestyle, you know, in Seattle compared to Montana. So we all missed Montana terribly and, and kept our eye on that prize of going home. And when we did move home, you know, we had high hopes that, that we had gotten it. We knew that our odds weren't good, but um, Stella's a special kid and we had gone through aggressive treatments. And so at that point in time, I really just wanted to put it all behind me. And um, I can remember my mom saying, you know, suggesting that, hey, there's these great, you know, online support groups for Wilms tumor. And, and you know, me just saying, look, I, I don't want anything to do with cancer ever again. I We paid our dues and I'm going to put it behind us and and kind of hope hope for the best that that she got it. Unfortunately, the the, the way it worked for us was she relapsed almost right away. So we moved home uh, and we had our first set of scans three months later to look at it, and it was already growing back in the lungs. And that was that was even worse than the first round. You know, we had some experience under our belt, but because we had just sort of put it away and didn't want to think about it anymore, and then all of a sudden there it was with a relapse right in our face. And, um, that, that for me was, was really difficult to, to face. During that seven months that you were in Seattle, were you running your business in Bozeman from Seattle? How were you and how would someone pay their bills? Sure, which is a good question. We were, we were very fortunate uh, to have like the support of the community around us and, and family. And so... Um, the community of Bozeman uh, just rallied around us. I mean, I think everybody was in, in shock, you know, to see, you know, we were, it's a small town. So everybody, we knew a lot of people in town and a lot of people knew us and, and Stella. And, um, so when she was diagnosed, um, our friends and, and family and, and community members really rallied uh, around that. And they had, had many fundraisers and and we would just get checks. We, we which was something that is kind of a tough 
pill to swallow or, or was for me at first. You know, I've always been a, an independent person that never accepted charity in my life. I was always the one giving charity, not mm-hmm. the one receiving it. It was very hard to learn how to accept that. Um, but the flip side was like, you know, Stella was potentially dying of cancer. So I knew that my time was, could, could potentially be limited with her. And so I didn't want to spend, I, I wanted to spend as much time with her as possible and, and then also having the newborn baby, I just didn't feel like it was an option to, um, say, move back home and work from home to pay the bills while my poor wife was <laughs> stuck in Seattle with a, a cancer kid and a, and a newborn baby. Right. So to me, it was it was never really an option to go down that road. So I just stayed in uh, in Seattle, went through treatment, um, and it was like, we're, we'll just figure out a way to, to pay the bills one way or the other. Then you move back to Bozeman, and three months is all you have before this devastating news of a relapse. What happened next? So we enjoyed our three months of summertime in Montana. It was great to move back home, and then, then we had to drive out to Seattle to do our first set of scans, and um, they could see it uh, relapsing in her lungs. And so that's, that was a, um, just like the ultimate sucker punch, you know, for me. Uh, but basically we said, well, let's, let's go, you know, do something fun. <laughs> so we uh, took a make-a-wish trip we, and Stella wanted to go to Disney World. So off we went to Disney World uh, for a couple of weeks while the doctors in Seattle kind of figured out a treatment plan. And so we took the make-a-wish it was a great trip for the kids. It was not so great for the, the parents. Just you, you really, you know, you understand why you're there on the Make-A-Wish trip. And so it's not the most pleasant, you know, feeling as, as a parent. Sure. Um, but And then sort of knowing what's looming when you when you get done that trip and go back to Seattle. So, but that's what we did. And, and then we went back to Seattle um, and uh, the tumor board had met. And basically, they sat us down and told us the treatment plan, which was, well, if we, you know, the the thought was, okay, we didn't get it the first time with fairly aggressive treatments. And now we're just going to give it the all out sort of last ditch effort and and treat really aggressively. And so um, their proposal was a stem cell transplant, which um, just to spell out for people like the stem cell transplant, the transplant is actually rather anticlimactic and and not the most important thing. The important thing is the super high dose of chemotherapy that they give before the stem cell transplant. And so they just give this mega dose of chemotherapy, which they describe to you as um, they basically kill the patient and then rescue the patient back with um, harvested stem cells. And so it's so much treatment that the patient would essentially die without some sort of rescue. And then um, they re- they rescue the patient with uh, blood stem cells, essentially. Before the patient goes through treatment, they harvest uh, blood stem cells from the patient and they free- they cryopreserve them, they freeze them. And, and then they give the patient a high, super high dose chemotherapy. And basically it's so intense that all your blood numbers just go down to zero and your natural blood and bone marrow wouldn't be able to recover naturally. But then they infuse those stem cells that they had harvested earlier um, back in and that forces, theoretically that forces 
the blood to wake up, I guess, and the numbers start coming up. So when they give that treatment and then the blood numbers crash and then, and then they infuse the stem cells, there's this sort of um, really scary waiting period um, called engraftment where you're waiting for uh, the infused cells to engraft and, and you're hoping and praying that the numbers will come up. And fortunately for us, um, Stella engrafted relatively quickly, so it took six or seven days. What's the average time of engraftment? I'm not sure. I, I, I would venture to say anywhere from 10 days to maybe 10 to 20 days for a lot of patients. So she was on the quick side with, with six or seven days. What were you doing? Uh, <laughs> just sitting in the hospital, you know, at, at that point in time, it's like, you know, it, it's a scary time because they don't get affected right away. So they, they basically go in and you go at, 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 for your chemotherapy and they just give this huge dose. And then you, you watch her or the patient just sort of slowly slip into this almost coma. And it takes a, a few days for all the drugs to sort of really kick in. Uh, and so you're you're just waiting and watching essentially. And then after that few days, when she's good and out, then they then they transfer the or transfuse the stem cells back in. Um, and and that's not a miracle cure by any means. That that's just to to save her life at the end. And and then the effects of the chemo really come on, and it's it's really horrific. Um, you know, I tell people the nitty gritty was that she basically for 30 days she was in that hospital and she had a fever of 104 plus and it never broke for that 30 days. Um, she, uh, like all her skin got brown and fell off. Um, she had mucositis, you know, her face blew up like the size of a softball and she had mucositis from her stomach all the way down to the other end. And then, uh, just constant diarrhea and, and nausea. And it, it was, it, it was just absolutely horrible. All you do is sit in the hospital and just monitor. And she's hooked up to like four poles and there's just constantly doctors and nurses coming all the time. And I can't even tell you like how many different medications she was on. Lots of, of uh, painkillers so that she sleeps most of the time. And I, I, I'll never forget the transplant doctor, you know, coming in and saying like, look, this is a, it's going to be hard and it's going to be a miserable experience. And the more she sleeps, the better. So anytime there's any you know, indication of pain, give more pain drugs and, and just try to have her sleep through it. When did you go from, you know, where oncology was kind of a foreign word to delving into the research? When you were back at Bozeman before she relapsed, were you online or did you just say, okay, this is over. I don't want to look into this. I don't want to get on the Google. I don't want to get on the Googles. I don't want to even know yeah. about this. Or were you kind of one of those always looking into new things? What 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 was that turning point for you? You know, it was right around transplant was the turning point. And but to answer your question, like not not so much before that. You know, I um, like I said, I really wanted to put it behind me and I, w I really wasn't interested, you know, in, in pursuing it any further. But for me, the, I'll tell you the, the exact turning point was before transplant when we were talking with our doctors and they were sort of proposing this, this treatment regime. And my question to them was, well, surely this will get it, you know, like 
you know, we treated aggressively before and that didn't get it, but now we're like doubling the treatment and we're killing the patient and rescuing her back. And surely like her odds will improve now. And the answer was actually not, you know, actually because she's relapsed, her odds go down. And that's the reason that we're treating so aggressively. And so we were given, you know, at that point, like 10% chance of, of survival or, or maybe even less um, because she had metastasis involvement and that's where it had relapsed. It's just things are, were not looking good at all there. And so I kind of had to grapple for a little bit with, okay, you know, you have this treatment protocol. It's really aggressive. Um, but we almost know it's not going to work, you know, like it only works in a small percentage of patients, if that. And and that to me was like an aha moment and a really a, a huge turning point for me when, when I realized that that was the case. And then I also realized that while I love my doctors and I love my team in Seattle, like they're very busy people. And if there's one person that can be like the strongest advocate, it was me, you know, that, that ultimately it came down to like, if you you know, want to have the best shot at saving your kid's life, you really need to step in and dedicate your life to this and spend a lot of time on it because doctors are great, but they have 50 patients, you know, that they have to split their time between. Whereas as a parent or caregiver, you have one patient, so you can spend, you can focus all your time on that, that patient. And so there, there was that kind of realization. And then also um, the kind of obvious realization of like, well, you're giving this treatment that you almost know is not going to work. And so what are the other options? And to me, that meant, okay, the old stuff doesn't work. I have to look for new and promising research that's coming out like today uh, and then try to push that into clinical settings. And the whole time I'm thinking that Stella's going to get through this treatment, but she's highly likely to just relapse right away. And there's nothing left, you know, like we've already been through the treatment to all the, this is it. This is all the standard treatment protocols. So when, if she were to relapse again, there would be no options for her on the table and we'd just be sent home to die. And to me, it was like, I saw that that was a moment that I could really try to make a difference. So that's, so so that's kind of what I did. And I um, started that approach with thinking, okay, I have a year of experience of like clinical experience with cancer, but I really need to understand this disease in, in detail. I almost need to become an oncologist, uh, but I don't have the time to go to school for six years. You know, I, I need to figure this out right here, right now. And sort of when I made that realization, that's when I really got to work. And I just essentially tried to self-teach myself cancer and oncology. And I did that through uh, Google <laughs> um, was, a, was, was a big part of it. And I, I'll also say that like up until this point in my life, I was practically computer illiterate. <laughs> I um, had an email address and, and checked it once a month and that, that was about it. So um, I just didn't have a need for computer work up until that point. But I realized that um, that this was a, a great way to learn. I also found uh, I, I was aware that there's a lot of uh, stuff that's, that's not all that accurate on Google. And so one of my first questions, like, how can I weed through what's what's good research and what's just, you know, 
propaganda out there on the internet. And um, I was lucky to find Google Scholar uh, fairly early on. And um, when I did find Google Scholar and sort of started pouring through that, I was like, hey, this is great. It's, so Google Scholar is essentially a Google search engine, but it's only for research and journal articles. So it's all journal articles published online. And I just thought that was wonderful. Um, I didn't necessarily understand the journal articles at that time, but I could see that it it was like peer-reviewed research, which I felt um, surely was much better than just uh, reading on regular internet. What did you do? You go on, you go online, you find Google Scholar. And I find that a lot of the stuff on Google Scholar are abstracts and it's really difficult to get beyond the abstracts. I'm sure you had a strategy for that. Number one and number two, how, again, how did you go from understanding so little about the language? I mean, you didn't even use, you didn't even use email for God's sake, (laughs) you know, but how did you go from (laughs) that to understanding these academic papers? Can you tell of the process that might be instructional for people listening? to copy your method? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I The biggest thing is not to give up, you know, and I mean, I think really like when I first had those, you know, the first journal articles, um, I literally understood less than 1% of, of what was in those articles. Um, it's really, if anybody's read an oncology uh, paper, it, it really is like a foreign language, you know, and I can remember just reading like paragraphs and just kind of laughing to myself because thinking like, this isn't even English, you know, like how, how can I possibly understand this? But, but having the motivation of your, your kid, you know, potentially dying and, and at least putting into your mind or, or the way I looked at it, it's like, this is my chance, you know, to, to try to find something and, and try to make a difference. And, and quitting isn't an option. You know, that, that was basically what it comes down to is if you read through a whole article um, and you only understand one, then just go back or, or you only understand 1%, then just go back and read the article again, you know, uh, and then you'll understand 2% <laughs> and then go back and read it again and you'll understand 3%. And so you just, you just keep doing it over and over again. Uh, and, and eventually it'll, you'll, you'll understand quite a bit more than that first time. And then in regards to access, I, you're, you're right. A, a lot of the stuff on Google Scholar is, is abstract. And then the, the full article is, is, uh, you know, you, you, not the average person has access to it. So, so my runaround to that were several things. One, a lot of, a lot of the articles are open access. So a lot of times you can get full access to, you know, the abstract, while they're brief and and just a summary, they are also informative and you can learn quite a bit just from the abstracts. And one thing I would do is if I had an abstract that that was the only access I could get to and I was really interested in it and I felt like this is worth exploring, um, then you just use some of the, you know, terms in the abstract as search terms and search those on Google Scholar. And, And oftentimes, a different article will pop up that you can get access to um, that explains kind of the same ideas. That's a great trick. Yeah. So just uh, relentless pursuit of that, that information will eventually get it to you. And then I was lucky. I, I'm not sure how many people are in the situation, but when, when I did 
get back to Bozeman or I, I had friends in Bozeman, um, Montana state university is there and it's a, a public institution and they have access, they have institutional access, so they can access all, uh, journal articles and, and lucky, uh, for both nights, um, it, it's open to the public. So anybody can go into the, uh, Montana state university library and you get on their computers and you have access to any, any journal article you could possibly want. At this point, you are getting more and more well-versed in not only cancer, but Wilms tumor specifically. And what happens, what do you, what do you do with this information? Your daughter goes through, she's coming out of the engraftment process. The doctors are still saying best case scenario is not the best case scenario. What did you do with this information? Were you bringing all this stuff to the doctor, bugging the doctor all the time? Were you trying to kind of understand it before bringing it to the doctor? How, how are you digesting and handling the information? Yeah. So, so basically I recognized, you know, right away that I was very a novice in, in that world and I had to learn it first. So I, so I wasn't going to the doctor with every journal article I, I could find. Um, I don't think they put up that with that for very long. Uh, but, but I would just sort of, you know, keep reading, keep teaching myself. And I'd use other resources too. I mean, Google Scholar is great, but um, we had both, you know, the clinical experience of going through it every day. So I started really paying attention to like what, what everybody was doing and what we were going through. There's also um, libraries at hospitals. So there's a hospital library I would, I would go to. And then when I did find something interesting or, or something really curious, I would mention that to my doctors and, and try to have a discussion about it and see what I could pull out of that that discussion. Were you coming in contact with other parents in similarly desperate situations or were you kind of alone in this misadventure? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I would say a little bit of both. I think my particular approach was maybe a little bit novel in that world and that I was really trying to buckle down and, and say, I'm going to learn this disease and I'm going to try to uh, make a difference, you know, through research for, for my kid. I think that that's a little bit of an, an extreme, um, but it was just sort of the path that I chose to go down. And, but then the flip side of it is you are, you know, when you're in the hospital and going through treatment, you are also surrounded by um, other families and other patients. And that's certainly really valuable to talk about, you know, cause you're, you go to the cafeteria together, you know, I mean, you're, you're living together in the hospital. So it's easy to have uh, conversations with other parents and other people. It, it's easy and nice, you know, because they're, they're not doctors. And so they don't understand it at that level, but it's nice to be able to have that conversation with someone who's more down at your level and, and discuss things that way. So my whole game at that point was to learn cancer. And then I was going to look for what's like the newest and greatest research uh, that's coming out right now about Wilms tumor and hope that that would lead to something that was clinically applicable, you know, something, some sort of research that we could push into the clinic and have it be an option uh, for Stella if she were to relapse. And so there's several miracles in the story, and that is one of them, was that on the day, on the very day of Stella's transplant, it was 
it was just crazy busy and and we were stuffed in this little tight it was like a broom closet of a room so it was just this really tiny hospital room and there's Stella like sort of flipping down into this like coma and they've decided like today's the day we're gonna transplant uh, the stem cells back in and and so when they do that transplant like I said earlier it's very anticlimactic um, it's just a bag of blood hanging um, and goes in, but but they're keeping a very close eye on on Stella, and so so there's constantly this in and out of nurses and doctors, and uh, my wife's there, and then of course Soren, the little one, picks that time to get really fussy, and so I kind of looked at the situation and I said, okay, everything's under control here. I'm gonna go walk around the hospital with with Soren and and try to get her to sleep. I became famous at, at Seattle Children's as like the the Bozemanite, the guy in Carhartt with a big beard. <laughs> that walks like miles, <laughs> miles and miles around the hallways of the hospital with a, a little baby on my shoulder because Thorin was, uh, I, you know, Thorin's an awesome kid, but she was a pretty fussy baby. And so uh, the only thing that would calm her down was me walking. So I got very familiar with the hallways of Seattle Children. So that's what I did that day. I, I said, uh, everything looks good here. I'm going to go for a walk with Thorin. We walked around. Um, she kind of fell asleep on my shoulder and it was right near the computer lab. So I said, okay, now's a good time. I'll, I'll sit down in front of the computer and open up Google Scholar and I'll type in Wilms tumor. And one of the interesting things you can do on Google Scholar is search by date or, or time frame. So I would be searching, you know, what came out, what was published about Wilms tumor today or, or what was published, you know, in the last week. And so I put that search in, and the first thing that pops up is uh, this paper, which I, I'm not going to get the full title correct, but it's uh, essentially was um, the isolation and characterization of the cancer stem cell for Wilms tumor provides promising therapeutic targets or, or something like that. And to me, I somewhat understood that title um, or, or the paper but it sure looked exciting to me. And I, I just thought, aha, you know, that's exactly what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm looking for new research that's promising and something that's applicable to the clinic, you know, this therapy. And so, so there it was. And it, it was this nice paper um, that a group in Israel had published uh, where they had identified for the first time the cancer stem cell for Wilms tumor and also named a drug uh, that targeted that stem cell. Essentially what the cancer stem cell theory is, it says, okay, these tumors are made up of a whole bunch of different cells, you know, hundreds of different kinds of cells. And a lot of those cells are killed by traditional treatments, chemotherapy and radiation. Um, but within those tumors, there's a really small um, population of cells called cancer stem cells. And these cells are uh, both tiny in size and also really hard to treat. And so many chemotherapies do not affect these uh, small cancer stem cells. And then these cancer stem cells retain uh, stem-like properties so they can be missed by treatment and then they have the potential to grow full tumors. And so that aligned uh, perfectly with our experience in the clinic in that we had had this big tumor, we had gone through treatment, we shrunk the treatment down to no evidence of disease. Um, so everything you could see on a CT scan was clear, but then we relapsed right away. And so, so we had treated, but we had obviously missed like a couple of these cancer stem cells and that's what regrew uh, the tumor. And so to me, when I 
kind of figured out that theory and, and looked at it and, and how it aligned with what we had gone through, I thought, okay, there's the key. You know, what we need to do is not only treat all these cells in the tumor, but also find a drug and add it to the treatment backbone that targets these cancer stem cells. And then we can put it to bed for rest, I guess, you know, um, kill all the cells truly. And then we don't have to worry about relapse. So I was very excited about that paper. Um, I will say I can remember just being in, in the shock of it all and, and going through that. I remember thinking, you know, this is too good to be true. Like here I am like looking for this sort of needle in a haystack and, and, and I think I found it, you know, like surely, uh, surely I'm nuts <laughs> because I, I'm going through this very traumatic experience and th this has just got to be too good to be true. And so I questioned myself and I said, is, it, is this really as promising as I think? And I better spend some time like really studying this paper so I know it really well. And so that's what I did. So I, I, I must have read that paper a hundred times easily. And then I did things like I, like I, so I would read the paper uh, once I felt like I had a good understanding of that, I looked at all the references in the paper. So there was maybe a hundred references to write that paper. And I would look all the references up and read those papers. And then I also did, I also, you know, questioned myself and, and thought, well, is this really, you know, as good as I think it is? And does something like this, you know, come out every few months in the cancer world? Or is this really sort of a groundbreaking study. And so what I did, you know, again, on Google Scholar, you can search by date. And so I would just go back through the years. And what I attempted to do was I look at all the research that's ever come out <laughs> about Wilms tumor, which is, uh, I was not able to look at all of this, just massive amounts of uh, journal articles. But I was able to go back and just sort of review and look for, you know, promising type articles. And then I would read those articles and then I'd, I'd kind of ask myself, you know, is this as, a, as exciting as the Wilms tumor paper that I just found? Ultimately, the answer that I sort of came away with is this, this really is exciting. It seems like the next big thing, you know, that could be for Wilms tumor. So at that point, kind of when I reached that decision, I decided, okay, here's this um, research. Here's uh, this drug that they name in the paper that, at least on their research in mice, um, was very, very successful, 100% tumor, you know, it eradicated 100% of tumors in mice. And so I thought this is a, a very promising approach. And so the first thing I did was I reached out to the authors uh, in, in Israel who had done the paper, and I, I wrote them, <laughs> I wrote them this very long, probably 10-page uh, email sort of explaining who I was and uh, the situation I was in. Before you reached out to the Israeli researchers, that day that you found the article, did you print it out and race it to the doctor or did you just keep it to yourself? What did you do between the time you saw it and the time you read it a hundred times and sent that letter or that email to the Israeli researchers? So I wanted to make sure that I understood the article very well before I went to my doctors with it. So I did read it a whole bunch of times. But when I when I did kind of decide like this really is promising, I not only reached out to the researchers, but I also went to my doctor with it and said, you know, don't you think this seems really exciting to me? Um, do you think this could be a possible treatment for Stella? And her answer to me, you know, <laughs> I'll never forget was, 
uh, you know, it's probably not. And I think you're a, a little bit, you know, wasting your time doing this because you just don't have the time. I mean, like this is the research paper and it's very nice preclinical data. But by the time this will get into, you know, something available in the clinic, you're talking years and years and years. And uh, quite frankly, you don't have that time. You know, if she's going to relapse, it's going to be right away. So it's a little bit of a, a waste of your time to be going down this road. That that was the doctor. And then my response was, uh, you know, kind of shock and also like, what other choice do I have? And I also saw it as a challenge. You know, my response, like walking out of that meeting was, you just watch me bring that thing into the clinic. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm going to, I'm going to try as hard as I can and, and, and try to do it as fast as I can, because I recognize that it is a race against time, but I don't see any other path forward, you know, like this, this is it. So that that's what I did. It's an interesting thought that you were able to get a response back from this researcher. Can you give a little bit of insight into what you, how, how did you write the letter and what do you think is the reason that they responded back to you? Sure. Uh, well, I'll say you're, you're right. Typically a, a 10 page, you know, impassioned letter that spells out every little detail is more likely to not get a response, just especially with doctors and researchers. They're very busy people. And I don't know if they necessarily have the time or, or the emotion, you know, investment to read, to get through that and read it and respond. And I often think this gal that was the lead author that I reached out to, her name is uh, Naomi. And she really f- filled me with a lot of hope by just by the fact that she did respond. I, I'm not quite sure, you know, why she did, but I think just here's this guy and he's, you know, his daughter's potentially dying and he, he seems like he's working hard to find, you know, treatment options. And I think maybe that prompted the the response, but I asked her really tough questions. You know, I asked her, you know, I explained the situation that we were in. I explained that I had found her paper and that I was really excited by it. And I asked her, you know, like, what are the flaws in your paper? And I kind of was pretty hard about it. I'm like, my, you know, my kid could potentially really use this treatment. And so I want to know you know, should I be excited about this? You know, or, or are there flaws in the study? And then I also asked her questions like, what would you do, you know, if you had this research and you had a child with cancer and you wanted to get this drug, you know, available for your child, like what would the steps be that you would take, you know, to do it? Brilliant. Yeah. And, and, she, you know, very nicely responded and answered all my questions. And her her suggestion, you know, was, you know, she said, well, if, if I was in that situation, I think um, maybe the first step would be to gather some support. So put together a patient community of Wilms tumor families and, and patients and, and get them on board, you know, see if they're as excited about it as you are. And then go to the pharma company that makes this drug and ask them to do a trial for Wilms tumor patients. And I just thought, you know, great, that that's a clear path forward. Um, sounds like a good idea to me. And so I got to work on it that day. And that, you know, that's where I, I, moved from like research on the computer to also exploring social media on the computer because I thought, okay, here's a, a, a you know, how am I going to meet these other Wilms tumor patients? You know, I'd, I'd met other cancer families, but none with Wilms tumor. So it was like, how am I going to reach out? And a lot of it was uh, through email, but a lot of it was on Facebook too, because I just, I didn't understand Facebook at all at that time, but I did see 
that it was this giant sort of network tool and that you could connect with people all over the world. And I thought, well, there, there's a good way to meet other people in similar situations. What did you do on Facebook to reach out to other families with children with Wilms tumor? And how long between sending off the letter and receiving the letter back and starting to collect these the names of these families? I mean, what are we looking at? Weeks? Months? Well, it was a matter of weeks. You know, it was probably like a month of, you know, doing research. And then I reached out to Naomi and the researchers. And she got back to me in maybe a week to 10 days with her response and suggestions. And because it was a clear path forward, I got to work that day. You know, so that day I created a Facebook account. And there's also not many people use it anymore, but there was um, the ACOR listserv, which is, uh, I think it's a American Cancer Society organization, but it's basically a listserv for uh, support groups for cancer. Um, so that's what I reached out to people on at first. Um, and I basically just wrote a letter that said, hey, you know, my name's Andy Woods. Uh, I'm the parent of a Wilms tumor kiddo, and I found this great research that, that names a drug that seems to be more promising and talked a little bit about the cancer stem cell theory. And, and I just put out there that, hey, you know, my idea is to, like, try to get some support together, gather together, and then go to the drug company and see if they will run a trial. Um, does anybody want to join me? And so that, that's essentially was the start of it. Just the series of meeting people through social media, getting connected on email with people. We put together a list of people, essentially a petition of sorts that, that said that we're, we are the Wilms tumor patient community. We like the research behind this drug, and we think that the drug will be really effective against Wilms tumor. And will you please start a Wilms tumor trial. So you just went on to the website of the pharmaceutical company. You found the division for this particular drug. You found an email after collecting a bunch of other parents who also had kids with Wilms tumor who were wanting to be or interested in being part of this cohort, and then just sent off the email to this person at the pharmaceutical company. Yep, that was it. So the pharmaceutical companies are all um, publicly owned companies, so they have information on their websites, contact information. And I figured out, you know, pharmaceutical companies are big and they're all working on different things. But I would look at the papers that have been put out on this drug, and I figured out who the authors on the paper were that worked at the drug company. And so there was maybe, you know, maybe on some of the papers there'd be 10 to 15 authors uh, but three of them were people that worked at the drug company. And so I figured out, you know, who they were based off the company's website and then got their email addresses and then just, yep, essentially sent them an email with a list that I gathered of people that were supportive of it and, and asked them if they'd be willing to run a trial. What happened? It's not that cut and dry. It, it, uh, they very nicely responded and said, hey, we're, we're, we're glad you're interested in our drug and supportive of what we're doing, but we're not interested in, in running a trial <laughs> uh, for Wilms kids. They were much nicer about it than that, but that was essentially the, the takeaway of the email. And I, I should state now that I consider myself very pro-Big Pharma. I, I am not 
against big pharma by any means. I see them as a valuable ally in the fight against cancer. And while they have their challenges and uh, can sometimes be very difficult to work with, I, my approach always has been be friendly, be nice, um, and attempt to work together and just don't take no for an answer. And, and when they do tell you no, figure out good runarounds, you know, that are not going to pit each, you know, you against the drug company or the drug company against you, but are going to sort of set up situations where you can uh, both work together. So, so that's always been my approach. And so when they told me, you know, well, that's great, but for a variety of reasons, we can't do this. I just would say, well, okay, you know, that's, that's uh, fine. But maybe if I come back to them um, with some other people that are bigger in the cancer world um, that all think that this is a great idea, then they may reconsider. And so, so what I did was I reached out to the Israelis again and, and told them that I'd get, sort of given it my best effort, but the drug company was saying, no, they still didn't want to do it. And, and then I also, at that time, um, started attending conferences and which is one of the most valuable things you can do in that pediatric cancer world. Um, I would attend them and, and go to all the presentations, both to continue my self-education about cancer, which I just found fascinating, you know, at that time. And then also there's like the greatest networking tool under the sun. So you can go to these cancer conferences and meet all kinds of, of doctors, researchers, people who are passionate about curing cancer, and also other uh, parents and, and advocates who are equally uh, motivated. And then so you can rally them and then also learn from, from them. What's an example of one of the conferences? I mean, when, if someone was trying to look up what conference, what are some of the conferences that you found most effective or most impactful? Sure. Well, the first conference I went to was the renal tumor um, biology conference, which they have uh, only have like at one every two or three years, but it was the put on by the children's oncology group. And so that, that's what I would suggest. If you have a particular cancer, or particular project that you're interested in, like look um, not necessarily at the big conferences, but at conferences that are small and focused on your exact interest or your, your problem. And so I was lucky in that um, right after we got through treatment, they were having, I think it was the sixth at that time, the sixth annual um, pediatric renal tumor conference was in um, Washington, DC. And so I thought, well, I should go to that. And, and then come to find out, you know, all the big wigs from that world were going because it's such a small conference. So they're, they're all going to be there. And I thought, well, this is a, a great place um, to meet them. And then I reached out to uh, Dr. Jeff Dome, who's the chair of the Children's Oncology Group Renal Tumor Committee. And I sent him the paper from Israel and I said, um, you know, this is this really interesting stuff. I'm sure you're aware of it. But uh, I, I think, you know, myself and other members of the Wilms community are really interested in this approach and, and we would like to see it into trial. And um, don't you think you should invite the Israelis over to present their work to, at, at the conference? And, and so that's, in fact, what happened was they invited them over and they, they came over and uh, gave their presentation. And it was really it was really exciting for me to sit sit in that room and watch both them give the presentation and then also the children's oncology group to sort of discuss, you know, like 
what, where do we go from here? You know, these are all the decision makers in that world. So they were like, well, what does everybody think? And they kind of hashed it out and talked about the pluses and minuses of the study and ultimately came away with, you know, everybody thinks this is a pretty good idea. And like, let's move forward with trying to make this the next clinical trial for Wilms tumor. So that was really exciting to me just just to be part of that process and then also know that I had, you know, people like Jeff and, and some others uh, that were really big and well-respected in the children's oncology group and, and at NCI and CTEP and uh, all these organizations that um, are, are influential in that world. And so I thought, well, now I have, you know, not only a strong patient community, um, but also like all these big doctors and influential people who also think it's a good idea, let's go back to the drug company now or, or have them go to the drug company and, and try to get the drug again into a, a clinical trial. And so that's essentially what, what happened. It took a while. It took maybe a year and a half after that process. It, it's, uh, I'll spare you all the nitty-gritty details, but it was not, not an easy process <laughs> to go through. But um, essentially, we, we, were, we did end up being successful, and the drug company did end up providing the drug for a trial. And that trial started in, I think it was 2016, in the fall of 2016, and it's still open to this day. What do you attribute to convincing the drug company finally agreeing to do the trial did you was it was it ultimately you telling them that all of these influencers in the renal oncology space supported it did you did they actually end up calling the pharmaceutical company and what were some of the lessons that you learned things you might be you might have done differently in hindsight to expedite the process or do you think this is just the fastest you could that one could ever have something like this go to trial? Yeah, well, I'll say that the, that it took a year and a half, um, and many people have told me that that is blazing fast. You know that that this has never happened before in the pediatric cancer world. Sometimes adult trials can get going that fast, but never with kids. Um, and they sort of attribute, you know, my persistence with the reason that that happened. I think. Um, the official stance from the drug company is no, it, it didn't matter. Um, uh, it, it, I almost sort of became a thorn in their side, you know, to, to a certain extent, which is something that was never my intent, but also I wasn't going to give up, you know? So there's this, I guess, fine line of, of, of playing nice and trying to work together, but also getting, you know, accomplishing what you want to do. And so the funny story I tell about that is, uh, they sort of cut off communication once they realized I wasn't going away. Um, and they thought we don't want to really run this, this trial. A big reason they don't want to run the trial is well, well, two main reasons. One, there's a liability factor. So you're, you're putting a drug that's orphaned, uh, off an adult disease and you're trying it in kids and it's never been tried in children before. So there's a risk, uh, factor there, um, two. And, and what I really think it's about is, is money. Um, these guys, the pharmaceutical companies spend, you know, millions of dollars developing these drugs and they really want that drug to work, but they want it to work in a large adult cancer that has many, many, many patients. And so they tried it in, in like adult uh, multiple myeloma 
um, some of the bigger cancers and it hadn't worked, but for reasons of this research, we really thought that it would work in Wilms tumor. They tried it in all these CD56 expressing cancers. CD56 is the cancer stem cell for Wilms tumor, and this is the drug that targets CD56. And so they tried it in uh, a lot of adult cancers that express CD56, but our argument was well, it's not necessarily going to work in those cancers, but we still think it will work in Wilms tumor because CD56 is the cancer stem cell in Wilms tumor, and that that, that was kind of our whole point. Um, but the, from the drug company's perspective, they look at Wilms tumor and they think, well, there's only 500 kids a year in North America that get Wilms tumor, and of those, most are cured with normal therapy. So this CD56 targeting drug is actually only going to be used by a really small handful of kids, you know, within that 500. So they're never going to be able to make their money back, essentially. And sometimes I think they would rather shell the drug than have to continue to produce it and the expense of manufacturing it for only a few uh, patients. Well, I suppose it makes sense when you think about criticizing the drug companies for these decisions. You don't think about your 401k being invested in these drug companies right. so that they will make these kind of decisions so that you have money when you retire. I mean, it's a really, that's a hard thing. Yeah. So now I don't understand how did you convince them to do it? I mean, did you just wear them down or did you create such an intrigue or curiosity in what other things this trial might reveal? How did you... I wouldn't say I wore them down by any means. I think that the, the strongest thing I did and, and what ultimately ended up being successful was just uh, getting the support from, from bigger doctors, from researchers, um, also the patient community. You know, But it was a combination of all those things that came together. So yeah, it's... it's uh, it, it was like a, it, it's not just one single thing, you know, it was just a lot of pressure from a lot of different sides. And I'll say, you know, the drug company, they, they were sympathetic, you know, like they understood, you know, here's a dad with a, with a kid in trouble and he really wants to make a difference. And he likes this drug that we have, you know, and so I think they understood, you know, from a personal level, but they just like, like you said, like financially, it just doesn't make sense. And these guys, you know, drug companies are all beholden to their shareholders and they're in business to make money. And this is not a way to make money Absolutely. <laughs> um, by, by investing in kids. So now this year plus goes by and are you by day slowly becoming a researcher or are you still doing your contracting work? I mean, each day that goes by, what does your average day look like during that period where you're waiting for the drugs, the drug company to agree to go to trial? Sure. Yeah, it, it was, that was the transition period to becoming a researcher. And so what I would do is I basically ha had my eye on really getting this drug into trial. And I spent a lot of time advocating for it and working on it, doing conference calls with patients and with also also with the children's oncology group and sort of discussing strategies, you know, as to how we would move forward. And so what I would do is I just, uh, I, I, you know, I have a, a, a good work ethic, basically. And so I would, uh, I'd wake up at like five in the morning and I'd go to a coffee shop and I would do 
research uh, on, on cancer uh, from five until nine. And then I, of course, had to pay the bills. So I would go do tile work from nine to five. And then I'd go home and hang out with the family and put the kids to bed. And then I'd get back on the computer and, and, and research um, oftentimes until midnight. And, uh, and then I, I would just do that day in and day out and day in and day out. And, and again, it's, it's hard to keep that, that pace up. But when you're thinking about, you know, your kid potentially dying, it's like you have this huge motivation to just keep moving forward. And what I did with that trial was essentially I would, I just saw myself as, as like a cheerleader, you know, like I just want to keep the bug in the ear, you know, of the people that are important and making these decisions. And so I didn't, didn't want to bother them. You know, I wouldn't like call them every day by any means, but I would, you know, there'd be like a flurry of activity. We'd have a conference call and we'd say, okay, we'd, you know, get some action points and these are the things we're going to do to move forward. And then, and then I would kind of follow up with people and then um, sort of let it lie for a little while. And then if I hadn't heard anything in say a month or six weeks, I'd just get the round of emails back up again and, um, and phone calls and start calling people and emailing people and saying, you know, hey, where are we at? And basically just not letting it fall off of anybody's radar. Uh, and so so that's what I did. And and in that process, you know, it, it kind of, it really got me interested in, in the research end of, of cancer. And I, of course, um, was passionate about children with cancer at that point, just because of my own experience and then in doing this. And I almost felt an obligation to share that information with other families because I could look back and see how I could imagine other families with other cancers in similar situations that I was in. And, and I know how that felt, you know, of just not understanding the disease and not knowing how to move forward. Um, but there, you know, I had just spent the last two or three years, like just you know, really intensely studying the disease and then also meeting the people that were important in that world and, and figuring out how to get clinical trials done. So that's what I did. I, I met some other families with, that were in similar situations and kind of offered to help basically do the same thing that I'd done uh, with my own daughter, um, offered to help and, and do that uh, for other kids and was uh, successful taking that approach with other cancers and and that was very rewarding and also just kind of continued my education because i had sort of solely focused on Wilms tumor for a long time so it was nice to learn three or four other pediatric cancers learn who is important in their world um, as far as decision makers and influencers um, and then also just like characterizing those diseases and seeing how they were similar and different to Wilms tumor and Ultimately, I came away from that experience and and still just found myself fascinated by cancer research as 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 an art and felt like had maybe another aha moment where I felt like, okay, there's these kids out here who have really rare cancers, maybe only three or four kids diagnosed every year or even less, and they're just they're just kind of pushed under the bed because no one has any research on them. There's no good treatments um, because researchers can't get funding to study diseases that only impact, you know, a handful of kids every year. So they're just very understudied. And that results in these kids who go into the clinic 
and are asked to follow protocols for other cancers um, because there are no protocols for their particular cancer. And unfortunately, if you know anything about the cancer world, there's hundreds of different cancers and um, they're all treated differently and specifically. And so unfortunately for those kids that don't have a lot of research behind them, um, they have to follow other cancer protocols for treatment. And and many of those are, are not successful. And so I, I kind of thought to myself, well, you know, one way to really make a difference in that world is to, would be to actually jump into the research lab and do the research, you know, figure out ways to do the research for those kids with really rare cancers and, and just sort of, just sort of find a way, you know, one way or the other, we're, we're going to look at those. Those kids are the most important thing and we'll figure out a way to fund uh, the research and, and start exploring those particular cancers. How did you become a cancer researcher? I mean, let, let me ask a background question. Had you had any experience in biology, microbiology, biochemistry, any of that in, in your prior life? No, no, no experience whatsoever. But I did have, you know, just that I, I basically self-taught myself at that point in time, but I'd had some accomplishments under my belt, right? So like we had gotten that trial going, um, I'd written some nice reports and papers for these other families that, that characterized their cancers. And so, so that was one big question is like, how am I going to move, you know, from essentially a stonemason to, to a cancer researcher? How, how am I going to do that? And I, I felt, you know, I'm 42 years old. So I felt like, if I had spent, you know, six or eight years going back to school, that's really kind of setting me, setting me back. Um, not that I, I wouldn't mind going to school. I would love to sort of squeeze in, that in somehow. <laughs> but I, but I also felt like I learned a lot, and it, it would be better to try to move forward, you know, by directly getting into a lab. And so, so what happened with my story was I was on a, a conference call while I was helping a family with a, a little kid with epithelial sarcoma, and we were on a conference call with Dr. Charles Keller. And uh, Charles was in Portland at the time. He was at OHSU, uh, and he's a pediatric oncologist who had turned into a, a researcher. And he's a very nice guy, and he told me about this course that he had every summer called the pediatric cancer nano course. And it was a week long boot camp that basically he reached out to the the community, the childhood cancer community and said, anybody that's interested, you're welcome to come to the lab for a week and you can shadow a scientist and uh, check out what we do. And there'll be lectures uh, about the various issues in childhood cancer and then we'll also like break into groups and, and pick uh, certain childhood cancers and develop uh, what he calls research roadmaps. So basically just characterize the current state of the disease and then make suggestions as to how we can move forward, what, what we can do to get more research into those diseases. And so when he told me about that, I, I just was like, that's perfect. You know, that's exactly what I want to do. Right. <laughs> and so I got off the phone and immediately signed up for that, that cancer nano course and went there. And that was in 2015. That was my first experience in a lab. And, and it was wonderful. I mean, it, it was really great. It's very intense uh, week, but I'd had a lot of questions, you know, where I had read a lot of journal articles and I'd spent hundreds and hundreds of hours, you know, reading 
these things. And um, I understood at that time, I understood a lot of the con- concepts and pathways involved in cancer, but there was still always this kind of big blank space of like, what does a lab actually look like? Um, what are these experiments that I read about all the time? I, mean, I always am reading about drug screens and Western blot analysis and PCRs. And so all these things that I just kind of skimmed over when I read because I just had no idea like what they look like, you know? And so here was this kind of opportunity to get into the lab and actually um, run a drug screen and see cell cultures and um, actually get, get my hands in there, you know? And so that was really exciting for me. And so I, I went through that week and then uh, basically took Charles out to dinner at the end of the week. And I, I said, uh, I said, you know, what, what, what would a guy like me do a, a stonemason if I wanted to make this uh, sort of midlife career decision transition and become a cancer researcher? And uh, he says, well, you should maybe reach out to some people with some labs, some cancer research labs and, see if you could do an internship, you know, take a sabbatical from your tile and stone work and uh, offer to do an internship. And, and my response to him was, well, when can I start? Brilliant. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, um, so he kind of backed. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I wasn't thinking about me, you know, but we uh, eventually convinced him that, that it would be a good idea. And so, so he, um, firstly, he says, well, I'm not paying for it. You know, you're, you're going to have to come up with some funding and, figure out a way to be able to take time off from Tile and, and, and come do an internship. And so that's what I did. I did some online crowdfunding uh, fundraisers because I had grown up this sort of nice patient community who had all kind of looked at, at what I'd done over the years and, and respected that. And so I, so I get a lot, I still to this day, get a lot of support from that community. And then I also applied to the Alex's Lemonade Stand for a post uh, grant, which is a grant that is is a small grant, so five thousand dollar grant, and is typically for uh, medical students, and it's given to them for them to go work in a pediatric focused cancer lab um, as an as an intern, basically. So, I, so I wasn't in med school, but they kind of looked at what I wanted to do in life and in this internship, and so they uh, very nicely awarded me. Uh, one of those awards. And that was it. So in 2016, I took some time off from work and came out to Portland, Oregon and, and did an internship in Dr. Keller's lab. And that, that was the, I was really excited. And that was kind of the start of it, uh, of it all as far as becoming a researcher. Were you focusing your research on Wilms at that time? Yeah. Yep. I, I had studied uh, several other cancers. Um, I hadn't, hadn't focused on Wilms tumor in several years. So when Charles you know, very nicely said, well, what do you want to uh, study first? I thought, well, this would be a great time to sort of bring it all around, you know, and, and take a revisit with Wilms tumor. And so, so my proposal, you know, he said, so come up with a project, write up, you know, a, a project proposal, and we can use that to, you know, get support and some grants and, and then also focus on a project in the lab. And so, so what I study now and what I did in the internship was I um, wrote up a proposal to study anaplastic Wilms tumor. And it basically is, the study is trying to develop a novel drug combination that's geared specifically to the anaplastic subtype of Wilms tumor. And so 
The problem right now is that all Wilms tumors, both anaplastic and non-anaplastic, are treated the same way, even though we know that for the anaplastic Wilms tumors, their outcomes are, are dismal. So um, my thought is let's focus on the anaplastic subtype and develop some smart targeted therapies that are specific to anaplasia in Wilms tumor and 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 then do the research and, and see what we see if we can't come up with a better treatment option for those particular kids. And so when I did the internship, I knew that um, that was going to be my focus. Uh, and I also recognized that it was important to get some meaningful work done and, and collect some meaningful data so that I could move forward. I was very interested in, in making a career of this and not a six-week internship. So we got in and went right to work right away. And basically, I, what I did was I collected all the existing cell lines and, and study models for that exist for Wilms tumor and then started genetically sequencing them and drug screening them and collected a pretty large collection of genetic sequencing data and drug screen, functional drug screen data, which had two cohorts, regular Wilms tumor and anaplastic Wilms tumor. And so with that data, it wasn't enough to like make a prediction of of a therapy yet, but it was a large collection of data. And so I used that data to apply for bigger grants. So the next grant cycle, I applied for three grants based off of that project and was able to share all the data that I'd already collected. And I was awarded two of those three um, grants. So essentially that, that was the start of it all. Cause that, that totaled out at about $300,000 to to study anaplastic Wilms tumor. And with that kind of money, uh, Dr. Car Keller very nicely offered me a job at the lab. And so I started this, this past summer uh, full-time. What were the results of that trial? And how does that influence your research now? And where are they with that trial? Sure. Well, well, the trial is, is still ongoing. Um, I will say that from there, it has not been uh, published, you know, like the results from that trial. I will say I've spoken with several doctors that are involved in the trial, and their indication to me is that, um, unfortunately, the trial has not done all that well for Wilms tumor um, kids. It has uh, seemed to work well for some other cancers that were involved in the trial. So there's a little bit of promise there. But unfortunately, the Wilms patients that I personally know that have gone on to the trial, it hasn't worked for them. So part of the idea uh, with this study that I'm doing at CCTDI is to, well, you never want to put all your eggs in one basket, right? So, so we just want like other options out there. And sadly, in the childhood cancer world, you kind of go through the standard treatment options, and then oftentimes you just run out of options. There's nothing left. And so our hope is that this study will result in a promising approach uh, that we can move into clinical trials so that it is an option for those kids. Before we get into the quick curious questions and wrap up, how is Stella doing? Uh, Stella's doing great. Um, I should have said that in the beginning, but Stella is almost, well, she's actually five years cancer-free now, which is, which is really amazing. I mean, the official stats there are that 24 out of 25 kids with her particular cancer and metastasis in her situation don't make it. So she um, miraculously appears to be that one, and we count our blessings every day for that. The next steps are for you to find the next 
miracle cure for Wilms tumor. Are your, your family here? Is everyone's moved here? Your what did you do with your tile business? What are the particulars with regard to that? Yeah. So basically I've made the transition. So I did the internship for six weeks and then I would, I would, so I would go back and forth. So my family was in Montana, the the lab is in Portland. So I, I came out for the six weeks. Then I went, I'd go back home to Montana and then I just keep going back and forth as, as uh, throughout that next year, as I was applying for the bigger grants um, in an effort to keep my study going. Basically I had started a good, a good study with the internship. Um, but I didn't want to see it mothballed for a year. I wanted to keep moving forward with it. So I would go back and forth. I'd basically volunteer in the lab for a month and then go home and work for a month and then and, and back and forth. Uh, but then when we were awarded the the grants uh, and I was offered a full-time position at the lab, we, we made the plunge. And so we closed the tile business and sold our house in Bozeman and the whole family moved out to Portland. All right. And then we'll get to, at the very end, we'll get to how people can get a hold of you and any ask that you have. Before we do, I always like to end with what I call quick curious questions or QCQs. <laughs> what advice would you give your 30-year-old self? Um uh, advice for my 30 year old self, I would say, uh, I would say, don't give up, keep going. Life is strange and you never know how it's going to work out and just go with the flow. Okay. And what is something that you believe that most people think is crazy? Uh, something I believe that most people think is crazy. Um, I believe there's a cure for cancer. I think, uh, that's a bold statement, uh, and, and many people uh, would say, yeah, that's a good idea, but I, uh, I don't know if it's ever really going to happen. And I, I think we're, we're right there. You know, this is a really exciting time to be in the cancer research world. Uh, we just make breakthroughs day after day, and I, I really strongly believe that we're going we're gonna to see the day where we put all of ourselves out of business. By, by curing cancer. And, and that ultimately is, is the goal. Well, I hope that that crazy thought comes true. And without belaboring it too much, do you think that people should think of cancer as one entity or one disease to combat? Or are all of these different cancers completely different things and the cure will come from just a whole bunch of different kinds of treatment protocols or or methods of attack. Yeah. So, so it's important that people don't think of cancer as all one thing. They're all uh, very different. However, you can learn certain, uh, there's certain theories that you can learn by studying one cancer that are applicable to the rest of cancers. And, and it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, and childhood cancer is a really good example of how, of, of both how cancers are different and also how they can be applicable to other cancers. And so one of the big problems we face in the childhood cancer world is it's often the case that researchers, drug companies, anybody in that world is going to say, well, because of the liability of, of working it with children um, and the sort of lack of funding in that world, what our approach will be is to study adult cancers and then use that knowledge um, gleaned in adult cancers and apply it to kids. 
And there's been many uh, research papers and studies done on how children's cancers are very different than adults' cancers. And so I just think that that argument is probably not going to pan out. Um, For the obvious, you know, there's many, many examples of that, but the most obvious being most um, adult cancers are sort of lifestyle uh, uh, cancers or uh, long-term environmental exposure cancers. And with kids, this clearly is not the case. You know, these clearly arise from birth and and are not the result of, of lifestyle choices or of exposure to um, toxins. And so you, you have a clear case that ch- ch- childhood cancer is different than adult cancers. And so the thought that that adult treatments are going to work in kids is a pretty far-fetched idea. The flip side is that kids provide a really good study model, which could be possibly applied to adults. Um, And the reason is uh, with adult cancers, you tend to have a very high mutational burden. So you have lots and lots of different mutations. Now, as a scientist, you look at that and you say, well, what's the most important mutation? But you're looking at this field of hundreds or thousands of different mutations. So how do you pick the one that really drives the disease? Um, In kids, they tend to only have a few mutations. Some cancers only have one mutation or one genetic uh, fusion or abnormality. And so you really right away know uh, what what is driving that disease. And so you can take uh, like a kidney, kid's cancer, and look at it and say, well, there's only two mutations involved in this. And then you look at an adult kidney cancer and you say, well, there's a hundred mutations, but those same two mutations that were found in kids are also in the adult ones. And so maybe those are the two that we should focus on. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Very interesting to think of children's cancer research as foundational for general cancer research. I hope that what most people think is crazy, that you you are correct about it. What do you yeah. want to, <laughs> I hope you. that, that I hope you're correct. What do you want to ask of listeners and how can people get a hold of you? Uh, let's see. So I'm, I'm easy to get a hold of. Um, you can find me on Facebook, just uh, search Andy Woods um, and I'll pop up uh, uh, fairly quickly. Um, I can also leave you my email address um, and phone number. Maybe you can put that on the link to the podcast. And and I, yeah, I'm happy to um, I'm happy to respond to anybody who wants to reach out. Specific asks. There's uh, let's see. There's two specific asks I could think of. We're coming up on year two of my uh, study at uh, Williams Tumor Study at Children's. Uh, Cancer Therapy Development Institute. And so um, we're looking for more funding to continue that study on. So just a, a donation to that study would be would be wonderful. And there's there's several ways to donate to that. But the, the probably the easiest way is through, I have an online crowdfunding campaign going through consano.org. Um, and you can probably also put that link up um, which will go right to the uh, my Wilms tumor study. I ought, one thing I, I recently started uh, being a lot more active in at, at CCTBI is I run their CureFast tumor registry, which is a, a biobank and essentially collects 
um, tissue donations, both surgical material and then also autopsy specimens. Um, we collect those in the lab and we bank them. And importantly, we do more than bank them. We, we actively work with that tissue. So we uh, cryopreserve it in a special way that uh, can be made into immortalized cell lines so that we can provide that to other researchers for their studies. We develop mouse models. We uh, drug screen all samples that come in. It's a really cool um, and very important biobank that we do, but it's also self-funded by the lab. So we're always trying to find ways to, to support that. And so there's a link on the CCTDI website that will go, bring you right to the CureFast tumor registry, and you can uh, both find out about it there and, and, and make a donation to it if you wish. We will have all of the links to all of those opportunities and links to how people can get a hold of you in the show notes at Apply Curiosity Lab forward slash blog. And I am really, really thankful and appreciative of your time and your story is fascinating. And I love talking to you. And I hope that we can spread the word and get people filling the piggy bank and help work toward a cure for Wilms, tumor cancer, and cancer in general. That's great. I, uh, thanks a lot, Becky. I really appreciate you sharing the story. And it's always nice to be able to talk about childhood cancer and, and think about the cures. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Andy Woods is a cancer researcher at the Children's Cancer Therapy Development Institute. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question, would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you're invited to join the tribe of the curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to appliedcuriositylab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.